Okay, Jim. Okay, Bob. Uh, which means add, secure, hook, also tenpenny. May your unfalling love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your law. I will always obey your laws, forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Speak of your statutes before kings, and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. Meditate on your decrees. Good stuff there. All right. Let's see here. We have uh, a couple prayer requests, and then we'll get just right into the Bible class tonight. Let's see here. Sherry has asked for prayers for her son, John. Long-time drug addict, and he's been in and out of the hospital for two weeks, and now he's in again with an infection in his spine, and he's in huge pain, she says. And so, obviously, he needs deliverance from the drugs. And so that's, you know, whatever it takes, Lord, that's what we have to be willing to say. And in this case, you know, if it means going into the hospital and suffering through this to be delivered from the addiction, you know, but we would pray for both healing and uh, deliverance. And then that Graham over in Scotland has asked, for prayers, for finances and his relationships and his health. He's kind of struggling right now, so we'll keep them both in prayer. And uh, let's see here. Anyway, we'll go ahead and just go to the Lord in prayer and then get started. Heavenly Father, so good to be in your presence, and it's good to know that you are with your people, even when sometimes we have times of trial and difficulty. We, we need to know that you're there, and we need to uh, remember that because sometimes it seems as if you're distant from us when in fact it's us that may be distant from you and uh, so be that ever-present reminder in our hearts and in our minds that you are there and that you are uh, with us and lord please respond to these prayer requests according to your wisdom and be with them and guide them through their troubles and to a happy shore where those things are behind them and especially for john that he has deliverance from his addiction and uh, if that means that he's not a Christian yet, we would pray that he, that would be the first and foremost thing in his life. And then after that, all other things will find their proper place. And Lord, we pray for this class. We pray that uh, the word would be handled right. But if something is said, which is not according to your will, that people would search that out and know to uh, not, not keep that in their hearts, but to uh, search out what is correct. We don't want to do anything to mishandle your word ever because it's precious and it's given to us to guide our lives and to see your face and to understand your will for us until the day Christ comes. And we pray that that day will be soon. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. That's correct. Back it up to the first uh, paragraph or the next paragraph. Um, yeah, whatever's good for you. Yeah, and just before I do that, when they say prophecy, I'm talking it will be forthtelling always, definitely. Tongues that are assigned, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. 23. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, some do not understand. No, no, no. Some unbelievers come in, will they not say, What are you? Are you out of your mind? But. Okay, are you not out of your mind? 
All right, and I'm going to, I had to ask Sergio a question, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, real quickly go back to that verse and make sure it kind of matches what you said. So go ahead and right now read that verse again, just okay. 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who not understand or some believers, unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Okay, very close. We'll just go with that. All right, therefore, this particular verse begins with therefore. It explains what Paul just said, that tongues are assigned to unbelievers. If an unbeliever hears an unusual set of occurrences happening in a church, they will naturally be curious as to what is going on. This continues to this day as people hear of great preachers, wonderful singers, and so on who are found in any given church. A church's hope should rightly be to draw in unbelievers with the anticipation that they will hear about Christ and be converted. And so the body is gathered. If all they are doing is speaking in foreign languages that have no meaning for the others in the church, there will only be pandemonium. I've seen this. I've gone to a couple tongue-speaking churches, and uh, I can tell you it's true. If uninformed or unbelievers come into such a gathering, their perception will be exactly what one would expect. The people are out of their minds. All one needs to do is think of a college calling a debate on evolution. During the debate, one person starts debating why the college should have a new wing dedicated to global warming. Another debates why minorities should be given preferential treatment in hiring. And a third person speaks in Chinese about the superiority of communism. Anyone attending such a gathering would feel he had entered the twilight zone. The church has a purpose, and that purpose is Jesus Christ. If there isn't instruction about him from his word, then it isn't meeting that purpose. And not only this, the instruction needs to be in an intelligible form which will edify those in attendance. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came and caused the gospel to be heard in the various languages, and they were all, as we have seen numerous times, known languages of those gathered. It was a sign to them of the truth of the message. They heard the message. They understood it. They were proclaiming Christ in languages that the people didn't naturally speak. And the people understood the truth of the message. However, some misperceived what was occurring. Right in Acts chapter 2. Rather than hearing the message, all they heard was the chaotic sound of many languages being uttered. The result was that they accused the apostles of being drunk. That's right. Full of new wine. Unless the message of the sign is understood the sign has no meaning. And so it is with tongues. Unless they are understood, they have no meaning. If they have no meaning, they shouldn't be uttered. Life application on this one. Speaking in tongues that no one understands and which do not edify the body is contrary to the intent of tongues. Therefore, the one speaking such tongues cannot be spirit-filled. It is impossible. If they have no meaning, then they are not uttering anything that anyone can understand, that's contrary to Scripture. The Holy Spirit will never work in a manner contrary to his nature. He has told us the nature of God right here. If something is in this word, which is not being done in a church, and they're claiming that it's of the Spirit, it cannot be. One plus one always equals two in theology. So there you go, 24. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in, everybody is prophesying. He will be convinced by all that he is and will be judged by all. But, and this one says it a little bit differently. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. Verse 1425, 
my notes. Paul noting the difference between 24. people. 24, thank you. I had my thumb way down at the bottom oh, of the page there. Okay, thank you. 24, Paul has spent 22 verses arguing the point that he made in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Let me read what that says to you. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He spent 22 verses with that thought in mind. As soon as he said that, he began to explain why tongues are a lesser gift. He has clearly demonstrated that they are often more of a hindrance than a help when spoken in the congregation. It is rather astonishing to think that with all of his time dedicated to this instruction, his words have been so utterly dismissed by, a, by many churches. As he desires that believers prophesy rather than speak tongues, he now provides the reason for it. He notes that if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced, can, yes, convinced by all and he is convicted by all. This is the reason for sharing the gospel. This is the reason for being a mature and informed Christian. And thus, this is the reason for learning scripture and then explaining to others in an articulate manner. When a member of the body properly speaks the truth of God's word, it is an argument intended for conviction. When there's no conviction, there is no change in heart. But when there is conviction, there is a change in the heart. And where there is a change in the heart, there is a conversion. In conversion, there is belief. In belief, there is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. This is the work that we are called to do, to preach, to convince, and then to make disciples. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? So when speaking in tongues that are unknown to the hearer, the hearer is not edified. But when a person speaks out scripture, faith becomes possible and through faith comes salvation. Everything makes sense there. Life application. Learn the Bible and share what you learn. It can have heavenly rewards. There you go. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down, worship God, explain, exclaiming, God is really among you. Okay, very close. This one says he'll fall down on his face, but it is italicized, so there you go. Uh, let's see, Paul noting the difference between people speaking unknown languages and people preaching the word of God, which is prophesying, shows the contrast in this verse. If everyone is speaking in a foreign tongue, a visitor to the church will think that they are insane. However, if everyone speaks coherent words when they, which proclaim scripture, the secrets of the heart are revealed. The Bible has the power to convict because it reveals the fallen state of man. Among other reasons, God has given this word to show our fallen state and how the breach between us can be repaired. As the author of Hebrews notes in Hebrews 4, verse 12. Let me take you there and read that. Oops, back a couple. I'm just back and forth and back and forth here. There we go. Oh, yes, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All right. As the Bible is properly explained, those who hear it will be edified concerning whatever subject matter is being treated. In response to this, there will be a reaction to the words by the hearer of them. In this case of the uninformed, he may be convicted of his need for Christ. 
Thus falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. This falling down on his face is the way that someone in the Middle East would show deep emotion and humility. It is found numerous times in scripture, and it would be comparable to a Western Westerner breaking down in tears and covering his face with his hands. There's nothing in this verse which would support being slain in the spirit, as charismatics do. The intent is a humble response and a deep felt conviction at hearing the word of God, not an ostentatious display at hearing a bunch of nonsense issue from the lips of men who would turn a church meeting into a carnival display. The intent of church is to teach people about God. A church can only do this if they proclaim Christ, who reveals God the Father. And a church can only teach people about Christ if they do so from his word, which is our source for knowing him. It is from hearing the word properly preached that faith arises, and from properly directed faith will come salvation. When a person comes to this point in the congregation, he will rightly utter, as Paul says, God is truly among you. As Goldsmith says, truth from his lips prevailed with double sway, and fools who came to scoff returned to pray. Life application. It may not be sensational by today's standard to hear the Bible properly preached, but in the context of eternity for the human soul, it is the most sensational message possible. Be sure to find a church where the Bible is held in high regard and properly explained. For the people that have never been to this class before, I read from my notes, and so my notes kind of, especially in the life application, are directed to anybody at any time because these are posted on the internet for people to read. And so uh, I'll say, attend a church that holds the Bible in high, uh, high esteem. Well, in the superior word, I would say, come to the superior word so we can hold the Bible in high esteem together. But there you go. That's why the notes are often kind of distant when I read them. Verse 14, 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, revelation, tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. This one says for edification. Miss Garrett's just coming in. We've had two Miss Garrett's come in in the last two minutes. This is great. Welcome, Miss Garrett's. We love you. It's raining Garrett's. Yes. Okay, we're in um, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Paul's words in this verse are for proper order in the church, and they are based on what he has said in the preceding verses concerning tongues. When the whole congregation is speaking in tongues and an uninformed visitor comes in, he's going to think everybody is nuts. This is certainly not how a church should be conducted. And so he asks, how is it then, brethren? In essence, what is the proper way of conducting oneself in church? In response to his own question, because he asks a rhetorical question and he often answers it, he provides the answer. Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. The Spirit is given various gifts to the body, and he has distributed those gifts according to his will. But each gift needs to be brought out at the proper time. In just a few verses, he is going to note that God is the author of peace, not confusion. As this is so, then blurting out nonsense or cutting others off with a tongue or revelation cannot be of God. All right? The Holy Spirit will never inspire anyone to do anything which is contrary to his nature. Therefore, the conduct of those in Corinth could not be spirit-led. Instead, their actions were merely for self-aggrandizement. And because of this, 
Paul will give very explicit instruction concerning the use of tongues. He's already done that. He's going to continue to do that. These instructions will confirm for all future church gatherings that those who do not follow them are not spirit-led in their actions. One mark of a church that is properly adhering to God's word and to leading of the spirit is that they will let all things, all things within the church be done for edification. If they're not done for edification, they're in violation of the word of God and thus they are not spirit-led. Okay, life application. We're just burning through verses today. Edification of the body is a necessary component of the, of the gathering together of the saints. If this is not occurring, then the gathering is wasted effort. Remember this and be a person who edifies others and provides edification for the church. Okay, 1427. If anyone speaks in tongues, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. Okay, now first, tongues are always speaking of a known language. They are never speaking of anything other than a known language in Scripture. Always. If you hear a tongue spoken in church, it must be interpreted, either by the speaker or by somebody else. Always. And then he's given the instruction here. He says, um, that two or three at the most. If you're in a church and you hear supposed tongues spoken and they're not interpreted, it's not of the Holy Spirit. If you hear more than three people in that church speak in tongues, it's not of the Holy Spirit. And if they are not interpreted, it's not of the Holy Spirit. That's it. If you're in a church and it doesn't meet those qualifications, I'd get up and I'd walk out. So, there you go. Always a known language, always interpreted, Did no you, more than three. What's that? Huh? Um, well, I never had the opportunity since uh, knowing about this. In other words, I went to one when I was young, 14 or so, and, uh, uh, you know, things like that. Then I've been in churches, you know, where they somebody has said something in a tongue and, you know, just... But I wasn't informed at the time. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Um, but um, you can see this nonsense on YouTube all day long. Yes. And look at the great comments down there below of how yeah. spirit-filled they are. Anyway, Paul now gives explicit instruction concerning tongues. This is a prescriptive verse for the church. It prescribes. Prescriptive means it prescribes. If it's descriptive, I got in a shipwreck, it's not prescribing anything. Okay, you got descriptive and prescriptive. This prescribes. Okay, it's for the church at Corinth and thus to us because it is it is in the recorded in the Bible. That's right. It's included in scripture. To not adhere to this verse is then to violate a command found in the book which establishes faith and doctrine in the church. Logically, we can consider the following. Here we go. One, the words of the Bible are inspired by the Spirit of God. Would anybody disagree with that? That this is this is why we come here because if this isn't inspired by God, then whatever word that we have about Jesus is up, it's in question, okay? And if that's true, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no point in coming to a church. The message of Christ is false, and therefore we might as well just go party it up, okay? If this is not God's word, we're wasting our time. Maybe the Quran is, maybe the writings of Lao Tse or somebody else are. If this is God's word, then it is inspired by God, okay? Two, the Spirit of God will never violate a precept which is found in the Bible, which he has inspired. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit do everything in accord with one another. Not one of them is out in left field where the others are doing something. They are all in accord with one another. Okay, the Spirit of God will never violate a precept which is found in the Bible, which he has inspired. Three, any practice or occurrence which is seen in a church which violates these prescriptions of the Bible cannot be spirit-led. It's impossible. 
the spirit wrote the word. The spirit is given the word with this instruction. The uh, spirit, what's number two, uh, will never violate a precept. They, he will never fill somebody to speak in a tongue, which violates his precept. Okay, and therefore, whatever you see in a church which does not do this is not spirit inspired. One plus one always equals two in theology. Okay, I'm going to divert here for a second, and I'm going to read off of another note that I did. This is I did a sermon years ago, some doctrine sermons before we really got into uh, starting with Genesis, and you know I did them on eschatology and pneumatology and angelology, and one of them was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and I pulled out just a short piece from this. A few weeks ago because when you get around charismatics that talk about speaking in tongues I've seen this numerous times I've had people say this to me even recently a good friend of mine did this to me but I've had this thrown at me numerous times over the years and then I've also seen it on Facebook I can't tell you how many times and I will give you the example the premier example of this is that um, uh, this is when I was attending uh, Temple Baptist Church down the road here years ago. Very legalistic, fundamental Baptist church, but that's okay. Nice people. And um, they uh, had a missionary come in and he sang some songs and he also talked about his mission work. And they, this is a little church. I mean, it's like this here. Maybe a little, it's bigger, but it's really small. And they supported 50 missionaries around the world every year. They had a mission budget that was unbelievable. They were very mission-oriented. And one of the, these missionaries would come back and they'd always stop by. And one of these guys came and he said, when I was young, I was in a charismatic church. And we, you know, it had enough of the nonsense inside. And we walked outside and there were some people rolling in the grass, supposedly speaking in tongues. They were going, you know, whatever. And uh, they laughed. These young kids, they laughed at him. And the people said, you can never be saved because you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Okay. And what did he do? He believed them. He believed that nonsense. And so the rest of his life, for many years, he just drank. He drank his life away. He joined the military and he drank and he drank and he'd go out and party. And because he was ruined, because these people, one, lied and two, they were false Christians to begin with. Okay. You blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And Eventually, somebody took the time to introduce him. As he said, breaking down in tears, as he said it, I was introduced to the King of Kings. And he said, I couldn't believe it. He was standing there in tears. And he probably given this testimony a hundred times in his life or more. And he couldn't, couldn't get over the fact that Christ would save him after the life that he had lived, which he didn't have to live because those people were false Christians that were saying this to him. So anyway, he, uh, he uh, gave his life to Christ, became a missionary, and he's probably still, unless he's dead, he's probably still serving the Lord right now, okay? So it was a very sad story. Um, on Facebook, for example, somebody will say something and you'll say, well, that's nonsense because it doesn't match the word of God. And I've had people come back and say, I am a spirit-filled spirit prophetess of God. And now you can't be saved because you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I, yeah, I've had people say this. People think way too highly of themselves, okay? So I'm gonna read you what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. So all of you know this, and this is the biblical example, because it's the only unpardonable sin in the Bible is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, everybody got that? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Mark and in Luke, this is where it's recorded, we read the one unpardonable sin recorded from Jesus' ministry. Each needs to be evaluated separately so they can be taken in context. Now this is your just short course on this okay it's one page i'm not going to spend all all class on this i'm just going to give you the short of it okay 
I'm going to take you, let me read you the verses so you have them. I'm going to take you first to Mark chapter 3. We'll go there. And Mark chapter 3, we'll read verse 22. All right. It says there in Mark 3, 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Okay, now I'm going to take it down to verse 20 and 30. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Okay, and there in Mark 3, we have a historical background that needs to be considered. Jesus was manifested to who? Jews. To the Jews, to Israel, okay, as their Messiah. Who were the stewards of Scripture? The Jews, the priests, but yes, specifically the priests, but the Jews, they were the stewards of God's words. The oracles of God, as Paul says in Romans, were came through the Jews. Okay, so they have the oracles of God. The oracles of God say that somebody's coming. Everybody got that? Who's coming? The Messiah, Christ. Okay? So when he presented himself, they were without excuse for not knowing who he was, for not seeing it, because the word is very clear when you look at it and say, he meets the qualifications. Now, they've called on every possible Messiah, and they're still doing it in Israel today. Every possible Messiah you can name, and it doesn't match the qualifications of Scripture. But this man did and does and they reject him. We were talking about that before class with some uh, ministries over there that catered to people, telling them the Messiah has come. And it wasn't recently. It was a long time ago, and you missed it. You need to wake up, okay? So we have the historical background. He was presented to the Jews. Second, we have the textual background, which is the biblical account, okay, along with Jesus' other teachings as are recorded in the Bible. After considering these two backgrounds, the religious leaders came to invest, investigate him and determine if he was or was not who he claimed to be, because that's what you do. You say, the word says this about the coming Messiah. This guy says he's the Messiah. And like I say, lots of people claim to be the Messiah. So what you do is you go to the word and you say, this matches or this doesn't match. Okay, that's what's going on there. Okay, so their investigation, when it was complete... Let me go back. After considering these two backgrounds, the religious leaders came to investigate him and determine if he or was or was not who he claimed to be. Okay. When their investigation was complete, they claimed that his power was that of Beelzebub, which means the devil. Okay. The sin which Jesus says is against the Holy Spirit is also against Jesus because they saw Christ's power firsthand and attributed it to the devil. But who gave them their scriptures? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the Son work in accord with one another. Same as God the Father. None of them is out in left field. Okay? So you understand the context. Now I'll read that again. This sin, which Jesus says is against the Holy Spirit, is also against Jesus because the Holy Spirit revealed Christ and then Christ came and was manifest. Okay? Because they saw Christ's power, which confirmed what the Holy Spirit had said firsthand and attributed it to the devil. The generation which saw Jesus' workings and which rejected the witness of Christ was unpardonable because it is possible for Israel to misunderstand him because they rejected the final witness, that of the Holy Spirit. This was unpardonable because they knew of the power of God from the Old Testament, which they were the stewards of, and because of that, it was unpardonable. Can that happen today? 
No. Why? Because Jesus isn't here. We have the testimony of Jesus. We cannot blaspheme against the Holy Spirit in that context. The next context is from Luke 12. We're going to go to Luke 12 and read verses 8 through 10. Okay, Luke 12. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. Now, though he's speaking to Israel and it's under the law, guess what? That applies to everybody. Because he's the Messiah of all people. He's not just the Messiah of the Jews when he was speaking to them under the law. He is the Messiah of all people at all time. So, he says, also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, he's speaking to the Jews specifically, not to us in this here, okay? Uh, do not worry about how or what you should say or what, how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay. We can't use the same logic, logic for Luke in that account as we did for Mark. Luke doesn't mention Jesus' miracles in the surrounding context, and it doesn't include the account of the Pharisees attributing Jesus' words to the devil. So it's not the same concept that's being portrayed to Israel, okay? Rather, this happened a chapter earlier with several actions happening between the two. In this account, it stands alone, and so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here must be taken as something connected directly to the person and work of Christ, but in a different way. Jesus precedes the commentary about blasphemy by speaking of his denial. If one denies Jesus, they too will be denied. Therefore, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a continual denial of the Lordship of Jesus until one dies. To speak ill of Jesus isn't, by his own words, unpardonable. We probably all did that before we were saved, or at least some of us did. We didn't know who Jesus was, and we heard he's a bad guy, so we say whatever we want. We can do it about Muhammad. We can do it about whoever, okay? And then we find out the truth, and we say, I was wrong. So, speaking a word ill of Jesus isn't by his own words unpardonable, but to reject him to the end is. He is the only way of salvation, and it is the Holy Spirit who testifies to this fact and to him. Therefore, to continually deny what the Spirit is prompting in a person becomes the unpardonable sin, rejection of our only path to life, which is Jesus Christ. Why? Because what does it say in John 3.18? I know Burke knows. John 3.18? He who does not believe in the Son is condemned already. We're already condemned. So if we reject Jesus until our last breath, it's unpardonable. Because he's the only path to uncondemn us. Shoots a hole in the concept of purgatory. It shoots a very big hole in the concept of purgatory. One demerit for Catholicism, which is in the list of a lot of demerits, by the way. So question is, can this be committed today? In the context of Mark, no. Jesus is not physically present, and we don't have his workings directly in our sight. Therefore, we cannot be accused of what we cannot directly see. In the context of Luke, the answer is yes. This is because both Mark and Luke, and yes, all of Scripture, testifies to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible was breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and it is his testimony to us. Further, his prompting in our lives, when we read it or hear it taught, confirms it. 
I will tell you a story about somebody that went on a plane flight this past week. A couple of my friends went somewhere. And one of them took the time to talk to the person next to her on the airplane about Jesus. And they said the person was crying because nobody had ever done this before. And guess what? On the previous flight that this, this lady was on the same flight, she never got off, but the previous leg of the flight, somebody had sat next to her and talked to her about Jesus, right? I got that right, didn't I? Okay. Everybody see what the Holy Spirit is doing there? He's prompting her. He's prompting her. The Holy Spirit will lead somebody, but it will not make that person call on Jesus. It has to be a volitional act of the free will. But that, and I, uh, when I heard that, I told the story that I heard from D. James Kennedy when he was alive, that he, it was either him or one of his pastor associates had given a girl a track on a plane, a stewardess. And she turned around, she said, why did you do this? And he said, because it's my job to do it. I'm, you know, this is what I do. I'm evangelizing for Christ. And she says, I don't understand this because this has happened three or four times in the past week. It's never happened in all the years I've been a stewardess. And he said, well, the spirit is calling you. He's asking you to come to him. And so she made a confession of Christ. And a couple days later, guess where she flew? Right into the World Trade Center. There you go. Yeah, I, that's the, the Lord is so patient with us. But there is a time where our lives will run out. And there's a time where we have to make the choice. I'll read this again. Um, in the context of Luke, yes. This is because both Mark and Luke, and yes, all of Scripture, testifies to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible was breathed out by the Spirit, and it is, is his testimony to us. Further, his prompting in our lives, when we read it or hear it taught, confirms it. When we read this and we hear about Jesus, we know that it's true. Everybody knows it deep down inside. You have to willingly push this message away. When we reject this confirmation until the end of our life, we thereby cut off our only hope of salvation, thus condemning, committing the unpardonable sin and condemning ourselves. Okay, the reason why I did that is because what we are talking about here when you deny somebody speaking in tongues, that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you deny that Benny Hinn is standing on stage and healing somebody, that's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you see these things and somebody is doing that, they are the ones that are bringing discredit upon the Lord if they are not doing it in accord with this word in every single word and precept. Because this was given by the Holy Spirit and he will never, ever contradict himself. Ever. God is not fickle. It says in the Old Testament, God does not repent. Right, But then it says in the Old Testament that God repented of creating man. Is that a contradiction? No, because he is using anthropomorphisms. We understand things from a human perspective. okay? And so God will say something from a human perspective, but it does not mean that God actually repents. And then the rest of the Bible will explain what he meant when he said that. Everybody got that? Yep. There is no contradiction in Scripture. It's our misunderstanding of God speaking in a way that we can understand. Okay, when he says, I do not repent, I, the Lord, your God, do not change. I won't change my mind. I don't repent. Samuel says it. He, the Lord doesn't repent. It means he does not. He will never change in his being. But when he says he changes, I repent of making man. It's for our understanding of why he is destroying man. But he's not changing his mind about it. He's showing how he works out his anger at the sins of man. Okay, it's a completely different concept. All right, so just be under, be aware of that and understand that you will not be blaspheming the Holy Spirit if someone says to you, well, you don't believe in tongues or you don't speak in tongues and you can't be said. That's absolute nonsense. They are known languages always. 
they will always be in accord with this word or they are not of the spirit. Okay, and as I, I've said this almost every class during these tongues verses, we speak in tongues here in the church. They are Hebrew and then they are explained immediately afterward what is said in the Hebrew. And we do that just for, simply for edification so that people understand the words that Jesus spoke or particularly when we're giving a sermon, you'll hear me speak in Hebrew a lot. And when I do that, it is always because those particular words had meaning to me when I was writing the sermon. And I think, I hope that they will have meaning to you. And so I explain to you what it says in as close of a translation as I can, because, you know, English translations are almost always, to some extent, a paraphrase. They're very, very infrequently literal, word for word, with the exception of maybe Young's literal trans, they're shaking their head. He's very close in the original, but it's also very hard to read especially when you don't have the emphasis. When I give it, I'm giving the emphasis. This is where this word is emphasized. Whereas Young's, you're reading it, you don't know. It's it's hard to put that together in your head. You know what's interesting with Young's? If you actually speak Hebrew, Young's makes sense. Yeah, because, I bet it does. Because it's just like you're reading words in Hebrew, but it's in English. Look at my arms. <laughs> Hair standing up all over them. I love that. If you want to get as close to the Hebrew as you can in the English language, read Young's literal translation of the Bible. You can get it right online. It's public domain, okay? And you will you will be very close to it, but it is hard reading. It's almost like you got to learn another language mm -hmm. to get it. But as Sergio and Rhoda, who are native speakers of the Hebrew language, will tell you, it is very close. And it's there are places where there are errors. I mean, he's just like all of us; he's fallible. But he did a marvelous job. He also wrote his own concordance. You got Strong's concordance, which everybody knows about. Robert Young did his own concordance. It's a different structure. It's a different style. I've got a copy on my desk. Somebody sent me a new one because the old one I have is so precious. It's actually an original from the 1800s. But uh, and it, every time I open it, something would fall out, and I don't want to do that anymore. But um, if you want the concordance, you can probably get it online rather cheap. It's it's a little harder to read than Strong's. I just want you to know that. You'll get a couple variations and things, but the translation of the Bible, if you're into that, you will enjoy the translation of the Bible. Comparing it, if you read like a passage and then a passage or just a verse and then a verse, you will be built up by it. So there you go. We're going to go on from after, what? Christianbook.com. Christianbook.com. Yeah, they have, they, they certainly, Christianbook.com is a very good site for ordering Bibles. If you want to send one to somebody, if you have somebody in Africa that's a friend and they want one, that's a good site to do. They will ship it off for you, etc. So, okay, we're done with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're going back into 1427. I just wanted to throw that in there because this is something that people need to be trained on. They need to understand when you say something like that or when somebody says something like that to you, is it true or is it not? The only blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that you as a human being at this point in redemptive history can commit is to reject Jesus Christ until your final breath. That is it. Right. Okay. God will lovingly give you what you want. Yes, that's right. God will lovingly give you what you wanted. He will give you the re just rewards for your rejection of his son. You got to figure now, God doesn't know anybody anything. He created everything in this universe from the micro-sized quarks inside of atoms that all have a function and a purpose to the largest galaxies out there that are so vast and so large. I... I I'll maybe put it in a prophecy update next week. I didn't this week, but they found the densest neutron star in the universe a week or so ago. And I think, I, I may be misquoting this, so forgive me if I am, but I think they said it's 22,000 times denser than planet Earth, and it's only 18 miles wide. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That shows you the magnificence of what God can do, okay? And yet he 
said, I love this creation enough to step out of the eternal realm and to unite with his own creation in order to redeem us back to himself. That is a marvelous God. If you're going to reject that, you're going to get what you deserve. Okay, let's remember this as we continue. The three things that I just read you, the words of the Bible are inspired by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will not violate a precept which is found in the Bible and any practice or occurrence which is seen in a church which violates the prescriptions of the Bible cannot be inspired of the Spirit. We got to remember that. Paul says that if anyone speaks in a tongue, which has been shown clearly in this chapter always to be a known language, let there be two or at the most three. Anybody? Is this 10? Is this 17? Is this everybody in the congregation? No. Okay. If you have a really small church, it might be, but okay. At three. All right. The spirit inspired words of Paul note that speaking in a tongue, a known language is acceptable within the church, but there are rules which must be followed. Okay. No more than two or three may speak in a tongue during any one service. This can be only be interpreted this way. There's no other way of interpreting that unless you want to do it wrong. It doesn't mean two or three at once based on his continued words in this verse. Two, each person speaking in tongues must do so in turn, not at the same time. The idea and design for speaking in tongues is that it is a tool to convince unbelievers. They are assigned to them. Therefore, in order to edify the church, there should be order and harmony rather than disorder in the speaking of tongues. And three, if a tongue is spoken within the church, it must be interpreted. Thank you. If a tongue is spoken in a church and there is no interpreter, there will be no edification. As edification is the intent of such speech, then the words should not even be uttered aloud. Okay? That's his rules. That's the Bible. These rules are given in the Bible. They are not exhortations, nor are they merely suggestions. They are instead prescriptive elements which are expected to be adhered to. Understanding this, then we can very easily root out any false tongues. Again, if the Spirit inspired the Bible and there is a practice which occurs within a church which does not conform to the Bible, then the source of that practice cannot be Spirit-led. Any tongue spoken in a church which is not interpreted cannot be a Spirit-led tongue. Any congregation where more than three people speak in a tongue cannot be claimed to be spirit-led. And any gathering where more than one tongue is spoken at a time cannot be speaking in the Spirit. Life application. The Spirit of God is not confused. Verse 14:28. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Okay. This verse continues on with the prescriptions of the previous one. They are commands given by the Lord as the Holy Spirit guided Paul's pen. Taken together, they say, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. How is it that such plain and simple sentences can be so utterly neglected by churches? The answer is that the Bible is held in little esteem by them. The word of God is useful only to them when it tickles the ear. And this is what supposed tongues of most churches do. They ear tickle. How Paul, however, Paul has spent an inordinate amount of time on this subject in order to get those in Corinth, and thus us, to be reasonable in our conduct in the church. Like his words in the previous verse, what he now says also commands just that. But 
is given in contrast to verse 27. If there's no interpreter, it's obvious. If someone wants to speak in a foreign language, maybe Latin or Hebrew, they may do so if they meet the requirements of verse 27. However, if they don't understand the language, they must have an interpreter present who can. Suppose there is a prayer to be read in Hebrew. Unless there is a competent translation of that prayer or someone who can translate the words which are being read, then let him keep silent in the church. This means that they are not to openly speak or read the thing that they had intended to impart. Why? Because no one understands it. Thus, it is both a waste of valuable time and the words have no value for edification. And once again, edification is the purpose of the church. If there's no edification, then it is merely an ostentatious display meant to attract attention to the individual and not to the glory of God. Because of this, Paul instructs that he should remain quiet, quiet and speak to himself and to God. If the individual with the tongue to be spoken cannot translate the words, and if there is no one else who can translate them, then if they want to go ahead and speak them, they are to do so to God alone who understands the words. As we gave an example from last week, people in Lutheran churches will read Martin Luther's prayers. They might even have remembered him. They might have memorized it. Well, they could stand up and start speaking that in the church, but unless he is going to translate it or somebody else is, he says, don't do that. Just simply read the prayer to God in your mind, speak it to him, and God will understand Martin Luther's prayer from 450 years ago. What the point is, I don't know. He's heard it 4 billion times since then, but if he wants to repeat it to him again, that's fine. That's what Paul says to you do. Know, the, the Jews do this today. Like when we were in school, when we were learning Bible in Hebrew, right. we would be reading it, but no idea what it means because it's ancient Hebrew. Right. And as kids, we don't understand it, but they would still memorize it and read it. And they would say, yeah, just prayer to God offering. It doesn't matter what it, what doesn't it means. doesn't matter what it, it, it is. It's okay. Even though we trust the Bible, it's okay. But if you don't know what you're praying. Then what good are you doing? And that's, that is what this is speaking about right here. What he just said is what tongues are. There's nothing else that would even come close to what he just said. Yeah, that is go it. to the Wailing Wall, yeah. you see everybody's People, praying this, they don't know what they they're They have saying. no they, idea they what they're They know they're the praying. words, but they don't know the meaning of it because it's just they reciting. Don't know, they don't know what they're saying. No, they're reading Most the scripture know, and it's, it's ancient, ancient Hebrew. Hebrew. It's not, you need to learn it to understand it. It's yeah. just like when you went to Catholic Mass and you did something in Latin. Latin. Absolutely. Latin. You have no idea. That is what this is speaking of. Yeah. That is what, this isn't speaking about all the crazy things that charismatics have been doing over the past hundred years at all. It's speaking of exactly those examples right there. Just let you know, the, the altar boys had a cheat sheet. Oh, they had the cheat. Well, that's okay. They had the cheat sheet. Now they can read it to God and to themselves. Okay, so Paul's words are precise, and the same logic of the previous verse applies to this one. I'm going to read them again. The words of the Bible as given by Paul's hand are inspired by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will never violate a precept which is found in the Bible which he inspired. And therefore, any practice or occurrence which is seen in a church which violates the prescriptions of the Bible cannot be spirit-inspired. As I've said three times tonight, one plus one always equals two in theology. Yes, sir? I was going to ask you, uh, the, the natural mind can not understand the truth. That's true, but it, it, you have to be careful with that particular verse. And I wish I brought my uh, my uh, uh, commentary on what, that one. Go ahead. It, what is it that comprehends it? Okay. If it's not the natural mind. Well, what people will say is that the natural mind can't comprehend the things of God. And they say that you can't understand scripture without being inspired by the, 
inspired by the Spirit, okay? Well, that's not exactly true because there are many, many atheists that know the Bible far better than Christians do. They know it far better. There are many people that I know that know the Word really well. Right. What often happens, they don't believe. That's right. And that is what that's speaking of. It's actually speaking of the understanding of the spiritual side of what is said. That's what's being referred to. Is what's common to all men. Right. All men can. There's many. That's right. We can. They can't hear you, so I'm repeating you. That's why I'm doing. They, the people that are online can't hear what you're saying. But he's saying that comprehending is common to all men. We all comprehend things. We can read the Bible. We can read the same thing. But this that is speaking about the spiritual side of it. Christ died for my sins. Okay. People understand that. And like I said, atheists will debate these issues all the time. Okay. But. They don't comprehend it in the spiritual sense. They have not assimilated into their heart and said, I grasp that Christ died for my sins. They know it on a, a heady level, but they don't know it on a personal level. And then we worship God in spirit and in truth. That's right. We worship God in spirit and in truth. That is correct. Okay. That's so, where the saying goes, but it says that there's a, between belief and faith is 12 inches. That's right. Okay. So, I'm going to repeat that, and then we got to go on. He said between... Uh, belief, belief and faith, or no, knowledge and faith is 12 inches. No, faith comes from the heart, okay? And the heart is the seed of reason in the Bible. And that's true. You need to have what they call a 12-inch conversion. Or if you're like me, I'm bigger, a 14-inch conversion. Whatever. Yeah, I'm a big guy. Anyway, yes. Can I ask about the tongue something? Okay, what verse? Um, uh, just in general, the verses we are talking about, like if somebody... Um, like me, I speak Arabic, I attend an Arab-speaking right. church, but my dad pastors, why would I get up and speak in a different language in the first place? Or is it something that is inspired by God? Like, okay. No, 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 you, no, you, you missed the, the course. I'm going to do this very quickly because we need to move on. But okay. um, her question goes back to a previous a class that she obviously slept through. It's uh, seven hours later in Israel, so she has an excuse. It's midnight, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's midnight, she has an excuse. Um, I gave the example a minute ago, and this is what this is speaking of. Somebody reads in Lutheran churches every year Martin Luther's prayers, okay? Some of them even know Martin Luther's prayers in German, but they have no idea what they're saying. And so, yeah, or in the Latin Mass, they will read in Latin. They did that, that was the language of the Latin, of the Catholic Church up until the 1960s. Okay, and so people are speaking in these foreign tongues, or what Sergio just said. They're speaking it, but they have no idea what they're saying. Okay, and that's the point, is that Paul says, it, you've got to remember what Paul is writing from. He's writing from Corinth to the Corinthians. I'm sorry, he's writing probably wherever he, where he was writing from. He's writing to the Corinthians. He had seen them in the church. There are people that speak the Corinthian tongue. They speak uh, Greek. They speak Latin. Probably mm -hmm. some of the higher officials speak Latin. Right. It's multilingual. And so people are just standing up and they're speaking in a tongue. Mm -hmm. And some of them are actually speaking in Hebrew because that is the original language. And they want to be impressive to people. And they're doing what Sergio said. I'm speaking this prayer in Hebrew. And they don't even know what the prayer says. But they're being impressive about it. And Paul is saying that that is damaging to the church okay. because nobody's being edified. Yes. When I was in China, I had two experiences. Being the only English speaker in the congregation. Right. If I spoke to God or to the congregation in my own language, not having brought an interpreter with me, nobody would be edified. Nobody would. That's exactly what we're saying. Here. If, nobody would be edified by your speaking in English in a Chinese. When I, when I was in a gathering and there were English speakers who were very good at translating, and I knew that, I knew that I could speak 
your language and have it translated more fluently than and you could. scripture. That's right. And there would be somebody instantly translating for the benefit of the whole Edified. Group. That's what that's referring to. Okay, let's go on. Um, therefore, I'm going to read this one again. Any tongue which is spoken in a church which is not translated cannot have been inspired by the Spirit of God. Its prompting is not of divine origin. If supposed tongue-speaking charismatic churches actually followed the prescriptions found in these two verses from the hand of Paul, there wouldn't be the embarrassing displays of ostentation found in them. Life application, the word of God is not confused, nor does it promote confusion. However, neglecting the word of God will inevitably do so. Stick to the word of God and let your doctrine be pure and undefiled. And when I say stick to the word of God, always in context. Because it is so easy. You know, this is kind of a cliche one. I heard this years ago, and I've heard it a thousand times since then, but maybe one person in here hasn't heard it. Is it there is a couple sets of words in the Bible that say um, Judas hung himself. And then there are a couple other words in the Bible that say, go, thou, do likewise. Anything can mean anything if you take it out of context. So you can say, see, he did it, go do it. Okay. No, that's not how we take the, the Bible. We take it in context. Anything that is not in context is a... Pretext. It's a lie. Okay, 1429. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Okay, this one says judge instead of weigh carefully what is said. I like yours better on that one. It's a paraphrase of it, but that's okay. All right, in contrast to tongues, which Paul has been dealing with in immense detail, and upon which he has placed great restrictions, he now turns to prophesying. Let me ask you, has does anybody remember anything from Paul in Romans or so far in 1 Corinthians that he went into such detail on? It shows you how upset he was over this issue of tongues and how demeaning it is to God that people do these things in churches. Okay. And the reason why is because it is self-centered. And I'm talking about real tongues or made-up tongues. It doesn't make any difference. If you are doing something in a church for a self-centered reason, and obviously, this was very big in Corinth with 20 different people. And I learned Hebrew, and so I don't know what I'm saying, but that kind of thing. It's demeaning of God in your relationship with Christ. That is why he's gone into all of this detail. Now he's getting into prophesying. Okay. Um, let's see here. His admonition is to let two or three prophets speak. Notice that he does not add in at the most as he did with tongues. Why did he restrict tongues and not prophesying? The answer is that tongues serve no purpose in the congregation unless, as Cindy noted in China, they are translated. And even if they are translated, they often interpret more than they edify. Okay, remember what Cindy said. She's in China. She's the only English-speaking person. She may not be a qualified translator of Chinese. She may speak Chinese, but she's not qualified as a translator because the two are not the same. Anybody that has tried to translate a language can tell you that. Okay, you have to be trained in your mind to be able to actually translate something, even though you understand that language and you understand that language. It takes effort to be able to translate for another person, doesn't it? I think Hedico could tell you that right offhand, having done that herself. Okay, so when somebody comes into a church and she wants to give them a, a word of edification and this person can translate better than she can, then she should defer to him. That's, there you go. Okay, even if they're translated, they often interrupt more than they edify. In the case of prophesying, he does not want to quench the spirit when edification is the aim of the speaker. Because when you're prophesying, if you're prophesying in accord with the word of God, 
then you will be edifying the people. This follows perfectly with his words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me take you there and read you what he says. And small little books here, 1 Thessalonians 5. And in verse 19, he says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Okay. Having allowed the speaking of prophecy openly. And with the thought that two or three should speak, he then says, and let the others judge. This is an important thought to consider. People claim inspiration all the time. It happens all the time, but they are not <coughs> inspired. Okay? Not everybody who speaks is inspired, and that's why you should judge. If it doesn't match the word of God, then it is not inspired of God. People can claim anything they do. Joseph Smith claimed that he got his message from the prophet, I'm sorry, the angel Moroni, or Moroni, yeah, Moroni, whatever. And, right, these people, anybody can claim anything. And people will throw their lives away following people because they claim that they're inspired. That's not how you should live your life. You should make sure that what is said is actually in accord with the word before you believe somebody, okay? All we need to do is look at any person who speaks in an incoherent tongue within a church to see how prevalent this is. Based on Paul's words of instruction in this chapter, not one of them is under inspiration of the Spirit. Not one of them. Just like these false tongue speakers, people who speak coherently in a known language are not necessarily speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. There is enough about false prophets and false teachers in the Bible that we should truly pay heed to every word uttered as the congregation meets. Okay? Those who hear should judge the truth of what is said based on a competent understanding of Scripture. And the only way to make such a competent evaluation is to, one, have the Bible handy for reference, and two, know where to go to in the Bible to evaluate what is said. All right, everybody's got that one as well, okay? One cannot do these things unless the nose is kept in its pages constantly. If this doesn't occur as people speak, inevitably false doctrine will creep in. John warns us about this in 1 John 4, verse 1. Let me read you what he says there. What is the last thing John says in 1 John? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, your, yourself can be an idol. You can make an idol out of yourself. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That was written 2,000 years ago. And there are only a few people on the earth. Now, how many people are there that claim to be prophesying? Okay, and seeing as how we're talking about being spirit-led, it's important probably to go back and understand. We've said this a million times, but it's a good point to do this again, is that being filled with the Spirit is what type of... Um, it, I don't want to give it away. I'm trying to think. Passive. He got it. It is passive in the Bible. Being filled with the Spirit is always passive. When Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit, it's not like we take something and pour it in there. That is not what that's speaking of. We are the jar and we are being poured into. And there's only a couple ways that can happen. Being filled with the Spirit is by reading the Word of God. It's by listening to the Word of God. It's by praising God. It's by praying to God. And it's by fellowshipping in the congregation. I can't think of any other ways that you're going to be filled with the Spirit. It's not going to happen any other way. It is a passive action. Okay? Example, so that you understand, this is one of the best examples of understanding being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit, you have all of the Spirit that you will ever have in your life the moment that you call on Jesus. You will never get more of the Spirit. 
but the spirit can get more of you. Everybody got that? Example so you can understand that. I am married to Hidako Garrett. If I close myself off to her, she ain't getting any more of me. Or if she closes herself off to me, I ain't getting any more of her. But when I open myself up to her, I will get more of her and she will get more of me. We'll never get more married. I will never get more of the spirit, but the spirit can get more of me as I yield to him. That is being filled with the spirit in the Bible. It is not an active thing. People that take it and say, I'm a spirit-filled Christian are violating the very fact of what Paul said, be filled with the spirit because they're claiming something that they're not actually doing at the time. They're focusing on self. They're not focusing on the Holy Spirit when they say that. They're doing exactly the opposite, okay? So, life application. The old saying, trust no one, it's good advice. Until a person's words have been compared to the word of God, they should be taken cautiously. It's six o'clock, just so you guys know. Yes, sir. John 6, 63. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit. spirit and they are, that's right. John 6, 63. You know this whole section is mostly ignored by Oh, it's ignorant. Yeah. Times has Paul said, you will judge. You that, must judge. Judge, judge, judge. You must like, judge. You must I judge. If I was a Christian, I should never never judge. judge. Thou shalt not judge, right? Do not judge others. Okay, that's completely out of context. People want to just, when they say that, what do they want to do? They want to shut down the argument. They want to control the Christian by shutting them down. And the Christian, not knowing scripture, what does he do? He shuts up. Says, don't judge. I better not judge. That guy's a homosexual. I can't say anything about it. That is not at all what that's talking about. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to judge. We're make to, supposed to make right moral judgments in all things in life. Everything we do is supposed to be judged. Am I to take this path or that path? Am I to drink this or am I not to drink that? Am I to date this person or not date this person? Am I to... Well, I won't even say chocolate it. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate or vanilla. Well, I don't know if that's a moral judgment, but it is a pretty yummy judgment. It's a very yummy judgment. All right, let's go on to 1430. Go ahead. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker must stop. Okay, you got it. got to be in order here, folks. Taken together, verses 29 and 30 state, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul notes that as people are prophesying, it is to be done in order, not simultaneously. This is a command for the church in order to keep unity. harmony, yes, unity, yeah, people not punching each other. But it is also a command to avoid confusion. The intent of such speaking is edification. If two people are speaking simultaneously, others must choose to focus on one or the other. Some people may not be able to focus on either. Because of this, there can be no edification from at least one of the speakers and quite possibly both. Just as if tongues were spoken, there would be only noise and confusion. I can attest to that. When I preach and people are speaking in the congregation, I cannot focus at all on what I'm saying. I don't know if I'm saying the right words or if I'm speaking Milton. I have no idea. I got to tell you, when people speak, and there is a lack of order in a church. It is very, very, it's, the worst is children crying. The second is cell phones. But the third, maybe it's second worst is people when they're talking to each other during the congress. It, it is very hard when you're teaching or when you're preaching and people are having a conversation. It, it is very hard. Even if they're whispering, it doesn't make any difference. Oh they're, they're, I'm, I have whispered. Oh, I know you do it all the time. That's okay. <laughs> That's, it's fine. I'm just making a point. You should <laughs> Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm just saying that it's hard to, you know, I don't know if I'm really being 
good about it or not. But anyway, um, well, the kid crying stuff. The kid, kid crying is horrifying. Anyway, we'll go on. And so, if one is speaking and another desires to impart what is revealed to him, let the first keep silent. Just as in any adult conversation, be it among friends or in a business setting, it is polite and proper to allow others to speak without interruption. This is just common courtesy that Paul is writing out. Paul's words noted here are a command. Thus, once again, we see the utterly false nature of churches where the congregation or a portion of the congregation supposedly prophesy at the same time. Have you ever listened online? I used to listen to like Life Church just to see what nonsense they come up with this week. And there, the guy would be walking back and forth preaching. Well, he wasn't really preaching, but he's just talking into the microphone, right? And there's people in the back yelling and screaming and laughing. Ah! It, I, I tell you what. I would not last two seconds in that church without beating somebody up. I just, I could never go there. You know, I just want to see what people are doing. And imagine, it's just chaos in there. And Paul is writing, this is, this is for the glory of God and for the edification of the people in his word. And turn it on. If you don't believe me, turn on Lifeway Church up in Tampa. I think it's called Lifeway. And just watch them for 15 minutes. You won't believe it. It's utter pandemonium sometimes. Okay, here we go. Um... As the Spirit has breathed out the words of the Bible and the Spirit will never contradict himself, I've said that at least 15 times today, there is no congregation which conducts such prophesying which is actually guided by the Spirit. Two people speaking or one interrupting another, it is not of the Spirit. It cannot be of the Spirit because the Lord has given us his word. Unless you deny that this is Spirit-inspired, and if you do, then you're probably not a really good Christian. You can be saved and not believe that. But you can't be told that before being saved and be saved. I will say that. There is a difference. People will say that uh, uh, I've called on Jesus. He's my Savior, right? And then later they're told that Jesus was not born of a virgin. He's not going to lose his salvation over that, but he's going to have bad doctrine the rest of his life. And the next guy that comes along that he teaches is never going to be saved because he has believed in what is called a false Jesus. Well, Galatians 1, 6 and 5, 6 and 7, okay? It is a false Jesus. If you tell somebody that this is a fallible word from God and they believe that, then what are they believing in? A fallible Christ. That is exactly what they're believing. And thus, they are not going to be saved by a false Jesus because he is perfect in all his ways. So you can logically be saved and not believe some of the core tenets of Christianity, but you cannot logically be saved by denying the core tenets of Christianity before calling on Christ. Okay, I know that's a fine point there, but please understand that. Okay, life application, and we've got something to do. We're going to close down because somebody brought pizza in just now. And uh, so we're going to close early. The people online are just going to have to go and order pizza because now they know what we're having and they're probably getting those tummy uh, groans because of it. So here we go. Life application. If you attend a church which speaks in false tongues or allows people to... Are we in 30 or 31? We're in 30, aren't we? Yes, okay. Um, allows people to prophesy at the same time. It is time for you to find a new church. Don't let claims of Holy Spirit power lull you into participating in disobedience to the Word of God. Okay, we'll pray and then we'll eat. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come here and to speak about your Word and to uh, share in it and to build each other up and to and just to revel in what you have given us. And Lord, none of us knows everything, but we can know the simplicity of what Paul has said in this chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that there is a point that needs to be honed into people's minds that it 
is for your glory and for our edification that we come to the church and that we don't do things arbitrarily or in a haphazard way, but we do them in a proper way to glorify you. And Lord, you did hear the prayers of the uh, uh, that were brought up to you at the beginning of the service, and we would pray for those people. John, who's addicted to drugs and also has uh, 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 something in his spine right now, uh, uh, virus in his spine. And then we have Graham in Scotland who asked for specific prayers as well. And that we certainly want to thank you for the presence of Sergio and Rhoda, who are visiting us and helping out the church right now with all kinds of technical issues and getting things done that otherwise would cause the church to not function quite as well. And we thank you for their help. And we also thank you that they have supplied some pizza for us tonight. And so we're grateful for that. And we ask that you bless the food and we ask that you bless the people here. And we pray this in and online, the people that are online as well. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, we'll say goodbye to the folks online here.